0: that's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BGW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 65 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am very honored to be joined by Denai Guerrero. She's an actress of stage and screen who won an Obie for the play In the Continuum in 2005, who made her film debut in The Visitor in 2007, whose Broadway debut came in August Wilson's Joe Turner's Come and Gone in 2009, and who, most famously, has played the part of Michonne on AMC's The Walking Dead since 2009. That, of course, is the highest-rated cable series in history. But she's a lot more than that as well. She's also a playwright who specializes in plays about women on or from the African continent. She co-wrote in The Continuum, among other plays, and this season has two that were warmly embraced in New York. Off-Broadway, she had Familiar, the story of Zimbabwean parents like her own and their kids who were born in America like Gurira was before relocating with her family to Zimbabwe after it became an independent country. Meanwhile, on Broadway, she has Eclipsed, a story about women during the second Liberian Civil War that stars Oscar winner Lupita Nyong'o, and which was last year a sensation off-Broadway. It has only gained momentum since its move uptown, and it is now nominated for six Tony Awards, including Best Actress in a Play for Nyong'o and Best Play for Guerrera. Over the course of my conversation with the 38-year-old, we talk about her personal journey from the United States to Zimbabwe and then back again, her relationship as an artist to the African continent, the significance of Eclipse being the first Broadway production ever written, directed, and performed exclusively by women, and the larger impact that she hopes her work will have in the creative community and beyond. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. To begin with, I understand that you call yourself a American. Can you talk about what that, what that means?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I was born in the United States. My parents were here from the 60s to the 80s uh, as academics. And so I was born in Grinnell, Iowa. My dad was a professor in, at Grinnell College. And then we moved back to Zimbabwe, and uh, that's where I was raised from age 5 to age 19. So all my formative years were spent there. And then I've been back here since then, mostly. So yeah, it's it's I'm from two places. Yes.
0: And when you, what brought you back to the states was college in Minnesota.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And is that where your interest in the arts developed, or had that already happened back in Zimbabwe?
1: It had already happened in Zimbabwe. Yeah. Uh, from the seventh grade, I was I started to do plays, and, and then in, in in high school, it was a very artsy wing of the high school was also very jockey i was also a bit of a jock (laughs) um and a very academically driven school as well but um definitely a lot of arts focus if you wanted that so i was big time into that i was a part of a little group called Chipao, children's performing arts workshop where i it still exists actually and i definitely got um got my uh it it whet my appetite deeply and I was able to actually create pieces and perform them so I guess the idea of creation and performance of pieces of work were really instilled in me then so that was all in Zimbabwe
0: how important after finishing college in Minnesota was your time at NYU Tisch graduate school which is apparently uh, as everything I've heard like as good as it gets
1: uh, I do believe it is as good as it gets. I was very thankful to be a part of that community and to still be a part of it, really, because uh-huh. never you you never stop being a part of that sc- that grad school program. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was um, it was very important for me to go there. I had to really immerse myself in the craft and learn the craft and understand how to uh, to build that in myself. To I always say I wanted to learn the rules so I know how to break them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that I knew involved perhaps because I'm from an academic family, but it definitely involved going into a, a program that where you really put yourself and your talent and your time and your abilities into these experts hands and you um, you let go and you see what happens and you you apply yourself And um, that was definitely something very very, very important to me. I definitely did not know I was going to go into uh, that sort of uh, on that sort of a path, when I was an undergrad, I was looking at getting a PhD in psychology for a while, Interesting. and it was definitely something that was um, along the lines of my my, human, my my concerns about human rights, my concerns around um, you know the justice around women and racial issues, nationality issues, gender issues, all those things were embodied in what i wanted to do as a social psychologist i was i wanted to do research that drove policy that affected policy where do you think
0: those interests and and passions stemmed from was it things that you had seen or witnessed or experienced in zimbabwe or was it things that happened once you were back in america
1: you know, I think it's just a myriad of things. I think, you know, I grew up in a home where my parents had been in the U.S. through the 60s. And so I had a picture of Martin Luther King on my mantelpiece that he had signed for my mother. Uh-huh. And so that still sits there. So that's an image I had from the second I was able to be conscious of anything. I had that image in my my um, in my in consciousness. And, of course, you know, I grew up with, you know, my mother's a university librarian. So I grew up around, you know, I was reading Beloved and Roots and you know the Fire Next Time all those are the those are the books in my house the, that was the library I had to pick from
0: <laughs> right up. so that's what I was reading
1: in in, in my spare time no Berenstain
0: Bears you're going right into it <laughs> exactly you know like
1: cracking into right. Roots right um, and so yeah I mean that was definitely something that fueled uh, a passion in me I was always into into history I was a historian um, you know, we have we were in the British schooling system they make you do a very intense thing called A levels. Um, Advanced levels <laughs> is what the A stands for. Yes. And, um, you know, there, I was a historic, uh, I was one of my majors in that was history, which very few took, <laughs> actually, because that's when you could select two to three or four to, uh, uh, sort of fields. And, you know, so I was always really invested in what happened in the United States uh, right through that. I, I knew the whole, everything there was to know. About uh, the civil rights movement uh, was sort of something I studied since high school, and so there was there were definitely passions and connections to the U.S. that were growing in me. Um, I learned more about the continent, funnily enough, once I left it. <laughs> then I started to really invest in what was happening there in terms of understanding it, and and you know it's interesting you see things more clearly from a right. distance. And then when I went to South Africa for a study abroad, which is when in college, which yeah. is really when I decided to become to devote myself to, um, to this field. Um, I, I was just around so many people who had been at the brink of death and all types of persecution, uh, based on the fact that they were fighting apartheid Mm -hmm. with their art. And that's really what convicted me that I could use my art as a form of advocacy and a form of activism.
0: And so the first time I guess that you really did that was when in 2005 you co-wrote with your NYU Tisch classmate Nicole Salter, and then co-starred in the play, In the Continuum, which off-Broadway in 2005, then at Yale Rep in 2007, won an Obie, all kinds of acclaim. Um, Can you share with people what that story was about?
1: Yeah, um, In the Continuum was a two-hander. In our final year in grad school, the astounding Zelda Fitz created uh, an amazing system where you get to create your own work in one slot otherwise it's you know you're given work to do you're given roles to play in different plays that are for your benefit and to help you develop a part of yourself but um in that one slot you get access to everything we produce it we run the show you can do whatever you want you can bring in other people you can do nothing I had been yearning for that the whole three years, that time period. I had been creating little pieces around the issue of um, HIV and women. I grew up in Africa, southern Africa at that. In the 80s, I'd seen the onslaught. But coming to the United States, I was very jarred by the perspective that was held here of the experience of people there. It was very... uh, one dimensional. I felt it was very statistic driven. I didn't see the people and the voices behind those statistics as I had seen growing up. So it became something very, um, it became one of those burdens to, on my heart, which always means I'm going to have to get it done, mm-hmm. uh, to tell the story of, uh, an African woman in that position and really have the audiences I could reach see the full picture of the full dimension of, uh, of a woman um, who who faces these situations and how much she uh, wants, how many aspirations she has, how much potential she has, how she is a person with much personality, with flaws, complexities. And uh, that was something I just rarely ever saw and I started to create from that place of of hunger and yearning to see that story told from a more uh, full perspective. So that's what it was about. Um, then there was another um, Nicole Salter's character. She had the opposite experience from me. She came across a stat very, very randomly. She came across a statistic that said that it was the number one killer of, of African-American women's, women between the ages of uh, 25 and 34. And she said, firstly, that's our age group. And secondly, how come I don't know those stories? Mm-hmm. So that's where she started to look into that um, the idea of, of uh, who that girl would be who now at 25 has HIV. And so uh, she then went to her home perspective, which was South Central Los Angeles. So the play tells the story of these two very, very different protagonists. Hers being a bit of a, you know, troubled teen in her very late teens. Mine being a woman in her, you know, mid late twenties who's uh, a- a pregnant a second time with her husband's child, who's kind of done everything right mm-hmm. and who's aspiring for more, and and gets, um, you know. really struck by this diagnosis while they're both pregnant. Both Mm -hmm. characters are pregnant. So you go through their weekend of just before diagnosis to the moment of their first attempt at disclosure. Mm -hmm. And we each play various characters. We play the characters, the protagonists, and the characters they go to to navigate this time.
0: With a lot of Monologues, right? Some A lot sort. of monologues. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's all monologues, but it's not monologues that are talking to the audience. Right. That's something that we both abhor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Though
1: it works in some instances, Sometimes, but yeah. it's just nothing I would run to, to write. Right. Um, it's it's more... Um, the monologues are... We kind of call them almost monodialogues. Right. Because the character is speaking to somebody else. Right. You just can't see the somebody else. Interesting.
0: So, separately... Your first film acting opportunity came along not that long after that in The Visitor, which is such a great movie. I, I, Richard Jenkins got the Oscar nomination, but everybody was excellent in that. And I just wonder, um, first to remind people, you're playing a Senegalese jewelry designer who's living in the US, quote unquote, illegally. Uh, what was that? How did that come about? And, and did you ever imagine it would become the sort of, quite a big deal that it did become?
1: Uh, yeah, that was funny. It did happen actually as I was about to go on tour within the continuum so I had to step out of a leg of the tour.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, some Some never forgave me for that, but it was <laughs> it was worth it and I got you know another lady got a chance to do the role right um, but um, it was very unexpected actually. I was uh, I have a fantastic manager. I still do I mean that was like ten years ago and he's still my manager, uh, James Suskin. And he's always like, you know, he's always trying to make sure I get every opportunity. So, you know, being a, a black girl, you have to you, your managers have to be pretty uh, inventive and um, <laughs> resourceful and persuasive in terms of getting you into the room. And so he I figured that that's what he was doing with this role, because he was like, oh, there's this, you know, read this this script, And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's calling for like a petite, like blonde, <laughs> you know, but I guess I'll just try as you always do, get right. me get them to see from another right, angle right, right. you know so that's when i cracked open that script i was like oh and i saw a character that was totally crafted for me to play in a way that i just had never seen i'd never right. seen that where it's just the exact sort of stories i i live to tell uh beautifully put on the page just stunningly written subtle powerful specific just a stunning piece of work. And I was like, who is this man? And uh, I just really, really wanted that role. And and I,
0: we should just say, by the way, this man is now an Oscar Tom winner. Tom McCarthy. McCarthy. right?
1: Well, he won <laughs> one already for Up. Uh, That's right. We um, forget about that. But he's got a yeah, two-time Oscar yes. award winner who I love and adore right. and am still very close friends with. And um, am so proud of. And so, yeah, that was his second film. And I went in there, and I just I just went in there to get it. Like yeah. It was just, there was no other option. <laughs>
0: well, now the show that you are nominated for this year at the Tony's basically dates back to not long after The Visitor, right? I mean, the first time yeah. that I believe you started work on Eclipse was in 2008. And so I just wonder, you know, again, for people who are still catching up with it, it's a play about women during Liberia's second civil war. And I'm curious how you decided to write a play around such a specific subject and also how it evolved. You know, was this a, uh, you know, you were obviously busy doing a lot of other things. So is it just something you chipped away at over a period of time or or did it pour out of you quickly?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, really it was one of those moments where I guess I'd, the, who I was was... It's, it's important to let people know who you are. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's the impetus because when I was in grad school, it was so clear to my professors and my teachers who I was and that I wanted to tell African women's stories. And I would happily, you know, play Ruby and King Hedley and I would happily play Varya in Cherry Orchard. But ultimately, they knew, it was very clear to them what my goals were as an artist. And so um, when... I and I also happen to adore the classics. Don't mm-hmm, get me wrong, mm-hmm. but um, when I was actually rehearsing uh, Ruby and King Hedley <laughs> in my third year, uh, one of my uh, teachers, uh, directors, who sadly passed away this past year, uh, Ken Washington handed me a New York Times that had the women Black Diamond and these other women who were in the the core of the Lord Rebel Army on the cover of this. New York Times, and I was like, they were all dressed in their, like, you know, slinky clothes and (laughs) tight jeans and cute tops, and their hair was all done, and they had (laughs) AK-47. And I was like, what is that? (laughs) He's like, I figured this would be something of interest to you, because I know you want to tell African women's stories. And if it hadn't been for him knowing that and handing me that, I don't know if I'd ever written Eclipse, because I don't know how I would have come across that image. Um, That image struck me, and there was just no going back. I knew eventually I would have to tell that, go into that story.
0: Why, just for just as a, sort of an aside, why is it that it's so important to you to tell those sorts of stories? You've said, quote, all my plays are about women on the African continent or women from the African continent. Why is that your focus? Who is the target audience for those plays? Everyone is the target
1: audience. You know, I just say what I do. You know, I mean, we could name a lot of different playwrights in the world. Who uh, do who tell stories about their people? Right. They just don't say right, it, right? Right, because right, right. it's just a given. Right. But I just said it because it's <laughs> I, I hadn't come across that much, right. and it was important that I. It was clear that those that I feel are underrepresented, I work to represent. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, we could name a ton of playwrights who. They're talking about their people, right? right. and that's all they write about. (laughs) That's all they write about. They just haven't said it as explicitly. Right.
0: Well, I mean, the other thing is that you said, quote, the thing I'm against is the inauthentic portrayal of Africans. Now, close quote. Now, does that mean uh, African stories that are written or characters that are played by non-Africans who maybe haven't actually experienced what they're trying to depict? Is it important that those depictions come from people who have... First hand knowledge.
1: Oh, no, not at all. Listen, I'm an actor. I believe in transformation. I love seeing people enact people from where I'm from well. Mm-hmm. I love seeing people do their work and the work shines through. I love that. I loved watching Forrest Whitaker yeah. play Idi Amin. I mean, that was a piece of work I will always respect and admire because I grew up around a lot of different African men. And he really mastered some stuff. <laughs> and I love that. I celebrate right, that. Right. So it's not about who plays the part. Right. Who pl- whoever plays the part just needs to be a fantastic actor who's willing to delve in, immerse themselves, transform, and come out with some fruit that shows the authenticity of who they're telling, whose story they're telling. It's got nothing to do with who's playing the part. What it's got to do with is uh, the creation of the piece the writing of the piece, the choices around the production value, the choices around the the narrative itself. How is it being the production? How is it being put forth? There are a lot of times the story of the African can be one-dimensionalized. It can be told from a very, very... Uh, you know, flimsy perspective. It can be told from a, a very almost Disney-like perspective. Not that I have anything against that. The idea of Disney. It's about the idea of taking a story that's very dire and making it something light and trite. Right. right. And I think that that is something that sometimes people do when they deal with Africa. Right. I don't know why. <laughs> right.
0: right. Right. Right.
1: Which I actually love. Right. Right. You know what I mean? It's just not. But that's not the story I'm likely to right. tell right. because I just want. I want something rich and full and. multidimensional and fun and scary and dangerous and edgy and and complex I want all those things for the African that I've seen other uh, people receive throughout my lifetime I want to see that for the African and so what what does fill me with outrage is when I see the African story told in a way that is very one-dimensional or I can see the research hasn't been done I can see that they've just slid around with the authenticity of what language people are speaking, I can see they've just slid around with the idea. They wouldn't do that with other parts of the world. Honestly, they really wouldn't. I mean, like if you're telling the story about folks in Argentina, they're not going to be speaking Portuguese, <laughs> but you're going to do that with right. Africa for some reason. It's well, you, always where people get away with that.
0: <laughs> and so even though you had spent a large chunk of your life in Africa, it was still in as part of that quest for authenticity, you then having seen that photo in the New York Times say, I need to go to Liberia and see this for myself. Exactly,
1: I knew I had to do that. There's no, there are very, I don't care what nobody says. There are very little similarities between Western and Southern Africa. People think Africa is one thing. That's another thing that fills me with outrage. It's not. It's very specific. It's a very specific place. And everyone, every part of it is like a new world. And people speak very different languages. There is no African language. No, no. And um trust me, I've dealt with many a battle with that explanation. So but no one would question, you know, the fact that German is different from right, French. Right, right. You know. But somehow I have to explain that Shauna is, you know, completely different from from Hausa, you know? Right, <laughs> like, right, could right. They, be, they have nothing in common. Right. But anyway, um, you know, so the idea of going there was crucial. I, that's me really practicing what I preach. There's no way I can assume anything based on the fact that I grew up in Zimbabwe about Liberia. Right. So going there was very important to me. And um,
0: How long were you there? Who did you spend time
1: with? I was there for a few weeks, yeah. and I spent time with amazing women um, and just very, very different women. Uh, some of them were the peace women who really are you <laughs> heroes that this world needs to know about and I will strive to continue to try mm-hmm. to tell their story because their story is something I'm so pained that the world doesn't know very well we need we really want to know what a hero looks like mm-hmm. that's the story uh, yeah. that should be told yeah. uh, the peace woman who actually pretty much stopped the war and transformed the country into a place where the first woman president on the continent could be elected right. and then I spent time with women and girls who had been really in the trenches of it and experienced what you see on the screen the stage mm-hmm. which is these girls who had been abducted and who had been basically turned into sex slaves by um, by the different armies and I spent time with them and the survivors of that uh, type of trauma which um, was completely transformative for me and and amazing to have been in their presence and for, to receive their generosity because it's not, a, it's not an easy thing to delve into your traumas and your, your histories of that sort of experience and share it with somebody. And they did it. They, and they, they said they wanted to um, because often they said no one had ever asked. And i never even thought about that angle yeah. of things when I got there. The idea that you people just want... You, there are oftentimes cultures and people and countries trying to move on might sweep these things under the rug and not deal with those wounds. Um, I also spent time with um, women who'd gone through uh, horrible moments in the war who uh, experienced things I could never imagine, like the loss of a child mm-hmm. and the most horrendous way imaginable and those are stories that thread into the narrative mm-hmm. i created uh with their permission i i took them into the the bosoms of the characters i created i spent time with a nonprofit where this amazing woman who had also been a peace woman but was now she was just like a big man as right. we say of <laughs> liberia in all sorts of cultural ways and also ways that affected um how the country was trying to get back on its feet mm-hmm. and she had a nonprofit. profit she couldn't bear how they spoke um not spoke but how they um put out their shows right. you know the, the that helps people learn about things so she said spend time with them teach them how to, to create stories i can't stand what they're doing right. and um so i spent time teaching yeah suddenly i was teaching and um really getting to know a lot of the folks i was teaching and so a lot of the personalities you learn personalities fast when i was you're gonna teaching. say
0: i feel like the 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 humor in the Peace should not be forgotten. There's this running thread of Bill Clinton and other things where I imagine there's that that feels too real to have been. Just, not that I mean I'm sure you could concoct uh, some some brilliant things, but that that feels like the, the just absolutely hilarious the idea that Monica Lewinsky, of course, she's wife number two or or whatever <laughs> else. So, but I guess so. You come back from this trip, you finish your writing, and how does it end up at Yale rep? And also, how does How do you decide that, uh, I mean, you've written a great thing here. You didn't want to be a part of it as a performer as well?
1: Um, Well, two things. It came back, uh, the theater that was really helping me from the get-go was actually the McCarter Theater. Okay. And um, they did a, that's where I did my first reading of it. That's where I I did a workshop production, which is when I brought on Liesl. um, This is
0: Liesl Tommy, the director. Yes,
1: the director, who is the director still. And... um, we you know we make a great pair i must say mm-hmm. she's a south african born raised um came here in her teens and we just have we're on so on the same page on That's just great. about everything imaginable yeah. so um you know she came on board and uh It was, it was, uh, that was where we did our first workshop production. And then Yale, Woolly Mammoth, CTG, a bunch of theaters came on and took it into their season. So then it it got full productions in those places. It actually had its world premiere at Woolly Mammoth in DC. And then it was in CTG, which is otherwise known as um, the Mark Taper in Los Angeles. And then, uh, it was at Yale. And so that's where, yeah, that's where we. We met Lupita as an under, as a grad student. Well, she was her saying she had just yeah just gotten off yeah, the plane from first Kenya. Day uh, she was put on. Uh, she was assigned to understudy this play. So and it did was you kind two
0: like? First of all, are you physically present in all these places where the where the show is being mounted? And then with her, did you guys immediately head it off?
1: We'd known each other from a little bit before, and she had been deciding on grad schools, and of course NYU and Yale were fighting over her. How so, had you known her? Uh, we met uh, through a, f- a friend yeah. At the Obies Like in 2007 or something So
0: she had been here Before she moved here
1: Yeah yeah She was prom- here for undergrad okay. She was in the US okay. She was in the US Okay And then um, we discussed The idea of grad schools And all those things At that time And she chose She went to grad school auditions And and um, they were fighting over her and yeah. Tish sent all the African alumns to try and persuade <laughs> her to come to NYU, which right. I did, but it didn't work. Right. But perfectly, there she was at, um, at Yale as we were doing the play, so right. it couldn't have been more perfect. But in terms of uh, doing the doing my own, that's never my goal. My goal is not I must. I don't, I don't know. People ask that question. I always think who, but do people think like that? I must act in what I write in because I act. That's just not how my brain works. Like to me, it was, I was actually keen to put something on the page and let it live Without me having to engine it. I had just come from over 300 performances in five countries of In the Continuum. And so, and I, what me and Nicole yearned for, because they wanted us to do more, what we yearned for was to hand it over was to see other girls, like we had been deprived of looking for monologues and things like that that really spoke to contemporary things that we were concerned about. We'd been deprived of that. We wanted to add to what black girls could pick up and do and shine through. So there was no way we wanted to hog it up. And and there was no way I would want to hog up a role in, in Eclipsed. I wrote it. That's enough. And now let's what I find actually one of the most joyous experiences I have as an artist is finding new talent, is seeing especially for me, it's women of African descent, um, seeing them get, a, get to fly through something I created and get to really show their craft and their ability to the world because I just feel that that is not often experienced. So when I can create that opportunity, for me, that is one of the most joyous things about what I do. So I, the idea that I would have to be in a play because I wrote it, <laughs> it doesn't even make sense to well, me.
0: Well, plus, in this case, I don't think it would have been possible because at about the same time this was all coming together at Yale Rep and these other places that you mentioned, I believe you were lining up your first Broadway appearance as an actress, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean – Funnily, yes. I mean, it's one of those things. The thing is with my acting is it always kind of creeps up on me, and I'm like, oh, there you are. There. Oh, yeah, okay, I got to go do. you. Um, so I had never, of course, that's always what acting does because right. there are things that are in the works for years, and suddenly they're looking for the person at right. the end. Right. So, I mean, I I didn't know I was going to be on Broadway uh, the same year Eclipse was going to premiere, but um
0: We should just say was. this was Joe Turner's Come and Gone, August Wilson play, and for was how, in, in your own... Sort of feelings having been training your for all these years to be an actress and be a, a playwright and all of this. How big a deal was it to be acting on Broadway?
1: It was amazing. I mean, there's yeah. nothing like Broadway. Really, there isn't. I mean, it's an amazing experience, it's an amazing tradition. Uh, you become a part of a community immediately. Uh, that is very actually supportive of one another and and very it feels like a family you you all go to the same water holes at the end mm-hmm. of the show and, you know stuff your faces and have a glass of wine and <laughs> have a chat and support one another and um, and it's broadway there's just it's just nothing quite like it. So it was it was really awesome. I, I made amazing friends through that show that I'm still very close to today, from Marsha, Stephanie Blake, to, to um, Latanya Richardson Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it it really it really was it was a very special time. And I, of course, I love I love uh, I love August Wilson. I think I use him when I have writer's block because not because I write anything like him, because I don't, but because I'm, it's the spirit of what he does. it's the spirit of of how he knew he was taking ordinary seemingly ordinary people you know from Pittsburgh and making them epic right and and that and what he was doing for the black voice through that and that is something that sometimes I, I need to just connect to the spirit of why I do what I do and to read his work always does that for me.
0: So after that, there were, uh, and, and even before and around that, there was a lot of various TV opportunities, some bigger and better than others. I know like mm-hmm. Tremay was a, over a period of years. and But the big thing, obviously, that came along in, in March 2012, I believe, was joining The Walking Dead. This is the highest rated cable show in history. It was heading into its third season. Were you a viewer beforehand? And, and how did this come about?
1: Uh Yeah, wow. I actually was moving to LA from New York because I wanted to really delve into the writing thing. (laughs) 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 And within a week of being there in my new little sublet, um, which is actually now the apartment I live in there, um, I got this audition. And it was a, a wonderful, wonderful casting director who's known me since in the continuum and has always wanted to find that, you know, she's one of those brilliant casting directors who always wants to find the right role for the right person. And she just felt this was it for me. And so... Um, you know, when I did the research, I'd never watch the show because I don't watch stuff that scares me. <laughs> I'm like, I like my sleep. I don't, watch, right. I don't watch that. I've heard it's great. I've heard it's just really defying all expectations, but I'm not watching that. Right. And uh, then I ended up, you know, I, of course, I'm a researcher, so I had you to had watch it. You had to go it. watch I was like, it all. Dang, yeah. I'm going to watch this. And of course, after the pilot, I was so hooked. I wanted to watch it forever. Right, right. right. And, um, you know, then I got really into wanting the part, you know, because I mean, for me, this sounds, you know, odd because actors are just supposed to want what they can get. And I get that. But, uh, I also felt very much that I couldn't just, you know, when you sign a contract that gives us several years of your life,
0: it's seven or something. Yeah. It can, be, it can yeah. be. Yeah. And
1: so, uh, when you do that, you really want to love what you're signing. I have to love mm-hmm. what, that's just for me. I yeah. have to love what I'm signing. And so to watch it and to get that feeling, uh, I got where and then I researched her and she reminded me of a character I'd created for for Eclipse the idea of a woman who, who like converts into an, a weapon of war to deal with how hostile her environment now is and and to deal with her own traumas which is the character of wife number 2 in Eclipse and so I was like wow I feel like this is a, this is my mom which is the character <laughs> if I played any I'd love to play her so right. I was like wow um there's such a very interesting uh, parallel here. So I got really invested and interested. And then as I watched more and more of the series, I just... I remember watching a scene and just seeing how these actors were giving their all in a whole different way. I mean, this just wasn't typical TV acting. I was like, they're doing, they're doing something extra. There's something really rich and deep and kind of theater-esque going on here in a really beautiful way. And so I just really remember just sitting on my couch going, I want this job. (laughs) And I never had had that experience before where I wanted a TV job that bad.
0: And can you pinpoint what the core of the appeal is for so many people? I mean, this is, in, in an age of splintered viewing where there's so many things for people to watch that almost nothing gets big ratings anymore, this thing blows everything away.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's it's actually just a myriad of things. I think it was just, it was created in the right tone with the right um, type of approach. I remember uh, someone said that Robert Kirkman said, treat this Piece of work, with more respect than the genre demands, and I think that that is something that was done from the get go, mm-hmm. with right down to who they cast as the leading man. All of it there's there's a very specific fabric to how everything was done and the the aesthetic that was created that was making it more than like there was no spoofing of ourselves. It's right. like we're going deep in and we're going all in, and I think that that is something that thank god resonates because it should because there's so much hard work and devotion and and complete commitment that goes into how the the work is put to the to the screen from everybody and uh, of course beautifully led by Mr. Lincoln who is just? I always tell him. I think he hatched from an egg. Cause I've never <laughs> come across someone who's more consummate, uh, an artist, a gentleman, a leading man, a leader, um, and who just is so selfless and and kind and supportive and celebratory of everybody. And, and so that sort of those sort of anchors in place, uh, writers who pursue true story, um, who really uh, look beyond the typical markers and go where few have gone. Um, you know that, that those sort of things that people are willing to do not for cheap thrills but to really tell a story you know it, I, to me it's so paralleled what happens in war stories I'd researched and so the idea of, a lot of times, I'm like, oh, I've, I've researched that. That really happens when you know society goes belly up, mm-hmm. and I think there's just something so resonant, and that there's that thing that, funnily enough, is the same premise I have for eclipsed, which is, who would you be if the world got this dire? You're not going to be who you were before. Mm-hmm and so I dare you to judge anybody. Right. And so uh, that's kind of the premise for Eclipse, which is why I love the character Mima, because I dare anyone to judge her, who right. would you be? Um, but that's also the premise for The Walking Dead. And so you're seeing this, like my father, who's a chemistry professor in his seventies said, you know, he's like, it's not about the zombies. It's about the people. And mm. that's true. It's about humanity. And, but then again, there's great zombie gore to go- goes with it. <laughs> if that's what you're into. Right. So it's kind of, that's why it attracts right. such a, a cross section of people. Yeah race and, and, and age and demographic and nationality. I think that's what it is. I think it was the right concoction from the get-go, but people held their own feet to the fire when they, um, when they put it together. They didn't, they didn't take any shortcuts.
0: I, I just have to ask, when you're out on the street or whatever and, and you run into fans of this show, I imagine you probably get some colorful characters as well, though, right? I mean, there's there's some there's some rabid, enthusiastic uh, <laughs> fans of this.
1: Yeah, and I, I love the fans. Right. I I really, really, really love the fans. They are who we do this for. Um, their their devotion and commitment to the to the to the show must be commended. <laughs> right. <laughs> At times, they're like, wow, they are they they feel the thing that I love is they feel an ownership. Right there's an ownership people feel. So That's why much they so get truly they can get truly upset with us, you know? And right. I love that. It's well, like, and also, yes, I mean, you like own it too. in
0: terms of intense, I, I did I hear that somebody got a tattoo of your character on their Oh, le- their tattoos there's a few of of tons them. of us. Yeah. Yeah. Not just
1: me. A lot of us have tattoos right. of have people walking around with tattoos of us on their
0: <laughs> person. At the same time that you're working on a big series which has got to be very time-consuming. How do you still find time to do other indies like uh, in 2013, another movie that went to Sundance and was about the immigrant experience and was very well received, Mother of George. Uh, how how does the scheduling work so that you can still write and act in other things?
1: Uh, you just kind of have to make it work, honestly. Yeah. It's, it's something that you have to, it's never a set thing. There's always adjustment, there's always, how do we make this particular moment work? And uh, thankfully, you know we've largely figured it all out as we've gone along. But it is something that, you know, when I I never plan to act, uh, I always plan to get something written. But when the acting opportunity comes along, I, I feel that thing in my heart, and I'm like, okay, I know, I know, I know, I have to do this. One. Right. This is this is the one I have to do, and I have to make it work. I have to make everything work alongside it.
0: So in 2013, your old friend Lupita suddenly becomes a household name and figure, and particularly in early 2014 when she wins yes. the Oscar. And yes, so yes. people say to her then, you can do pretty much anything. What do you want to do? And she says eclipsed. How did that, did that surprise you? How did that feel?
1: Uh, it felt awesome, but it didn't surprise me at all. She's always, um, she. every time I would see her, even during the, the height of the award season, she would say, I have to get back on stage. I have to get back on stage. And you know, she was very clear about which plays she wanted to do. She, I, I saw she'd said it in like a Vogue article, and um, I was like, oh, she's really serious. She <laughs> denied career is eclipsed or the convert, you know? Right. And I was just like, okay, she's very clear. She's wow. very clear what she wants to do. And so I wasn't surprised. And she's a very, you know, she is, she's a woman of vision, she's a woman of determination, and she uh, is a woman of intention. So when she decides what she needs to get done, she's gonna get it done. And she wanted to get back on stage, and she wanted she wanted to use this play. And I knew she'd always loved the play, and we'd always tried to work together. But she was always in school. I tried to use my other play, *The Convert*. I came out while she was in school. *Eclipsed*. We whenever there was readings or workshops or anything, I could get her for for just a couple days, right. I would. Um, but then you know, and then she became you know she became Lupita the household And <laughs> I was like, no, I'm never gonna get right, to work with right. her. But then she kept saying, I've got to get back on the stage, and she kept talking about *Eclipsed*. And so I. I, I wasn't actually surprised.
0: So she had not ever I don't I don't think ever even gone on at Yale Rep. No, she never went she on. She was the understudy. So yeah. Now uh, I'm just curious how did the how did the show evolve if if at all between Yale Rep and the public and then eventually Broadway. I mean, were there do you have to change it depending on your venue or your actor or things like that or does it pretty much stay the same?
1: No, the venues. Um have to change have to change themselves they have yeah. to transform accordingly to what i've written but um yeah i mean what was there was one scene that turned into two scenes that's really the key thing that happened it's it was an overlapping scene and it was something that when we were at the public we really wanted to to re-examine and we couldn't figure it out for a little while and it's just one part everything else actually is exactly the same as it was Um, before in terms of what's on the page. Mm -hmm. But that one scene, we just had to switch it up a little. And so um, actually, beautifully, it was a collaboration with Mandy Hackett and and Oscar Eustace, but Mandy Hackett came up with the idea of splitting it into two scenes, which at first I was very bristly about doing. (laughs) And then I finally just did it. And it was actually resulted in one of my favorite moments of the play. So it's funny what happens when you listen to your collaborators a little. But um, yeah, other than that, which is... um, You know, this one scene where, you know, the girl used to, the girl, when she learns, when she first shoots the gun, and when wife number one, Helena, first writes her name, those used to be um, one scene overlapping. Ah, gotcha. And separating them out, I think, was a fantastic move that I I, I credit Mandy Hackett for suggesting. And then when I did it, I I just found some beautiful moments that I hadn't had before. So you know, pick the right collaborators They help you get better.
0: So describe this, this period where I guess up until April of this year, I'm not sure exactly when it would have started. I guess it would have been in April of this year when you have this rare thing of having a very acclaimed show on Broadway clips and a very acclaimed show off Broadway with familiar running at the same time, uh, telling two stories about African, the African experience that, have, which itself is, you know, you're, you're lucky if you have one in a season usually. So here you've got, you've got this happening overlappingly. What was, what was that kind of a pinch me thing for you?
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it's funny because some folks thought, oh, God, this is going to be too much. It's too overwhelming. It's two plays at the same time. Yeah. And then some people were like, this is awesome. Like, you know, the, my director for Familiar was just Rebecca, Rebecca Tashman. She right. just was such a cheerleader for this happening. And, and she really reminded me that it was, you know, it was a big deal. Cause you know I'm just trying to put one foot in front of the other. Right, bed. right. Like, right. Literally, I'm like, and then I was shooting this movie at the same time. I was like, okay, how am I gonna? Right. And then I gotta fly there, and then I gotta be right. in there. You know what I mean? I gotta get that rewrite done. You know what I mean? That's what my brain's doing. Sure. She's looking at the, bigger, the picture, bigger picture, and you always need those people around you.
0: We should tell people what what familiar is because this has not gotten as much attention as Eclipse, but this is a sort of closer to your own experience, right? And, and it's also right. a lot lighter of a, not in a, in a derogatory way, but just no. a more comedic show. <laughs> and I guess anything is, anything could be a little lighter than Eclipse. That's pretty heavy. But this was, right. this one is maybe, can you just set the scene a little bit?
1: Yeah. Familiar is based on a, an immigrant family, a Zimbabwean family in um, a, a suburb of Minneapolis. And on it's on the weekend of their eldest daughter's wedding. She's getting married to a lovely Caucasian-American man. That's not the conflict. Um, and uh, you see a time where these, him and the daughter want to enact a Zimbabwean very ancient ritual of marriage that causes some mayhem in the home and uh, brings in the auntie from, uh, <laughs> from Zimbabwe and her mayhem right. itself. <laughs> and uh, much ensues as a result of that. But yeah, I mean, really at the core of it, to me, this play is about... I wanted it to feel familiar to anybody, be you Greek-American, be you Jewish-American, be you Russian, be you Korean. Uh, And I wanted it to be something that also was about healing at the core of it. Yeah, there's a ton of laughs, and then it it has dramatic moments too. It's a dramedy. But um, at the core of it, it, to me, it was about healing.
0: One question that came up in a few of the pieces that were written after it debuted was, why you decided, which was certainly your right, but why not mention Robert Mugabe, who obviously since 1980 has been central to the issues in Zimbabwe, which, I mean, I guess you probably grew up with him in the background, right?
1: Well, I mean, the play is about Zimbabweans, and I think that, that Zimbabweans are are many, many things. And so I think it was important to me to really, to me the core crucial thing to do is to listen to the characters. I could put tons of things on that stage and make everybody happy and check everybody's right. boxes about what Zimbabwe is supposed to look right. like and be. But what I have to do as a writer and as an artist is listen to the story and listen to the character. And really, to me, writing is a constant act of submission. I'm submitting to something that I am channeling, that I am being a vessel for. And so to tell the story of these particular Zimbabweans in this home their issues were what you saw.
0: Last three very brief things are just about the big picture here. And so first of all, Eclipsed has made history in the sense that it is the first Broadway show ever written, directed, and performed exclusively by black women. Is that something that is important to you to know that that's now been done and is that something you hope to see replicated a lot?
1: Of course, I mean I'm I'm very glad to see that that um, has happened. I was I was surprised that that was the first time it happened. It's happened. It's the first time it happened. Forget the black woman part. It's the first time it's happened for women. Really, there's never been a show that's been written, directed, and fully performed by women. That's of any color. Yeah, and uh, that is something that I think definitely was a barrier that needed to be broken. I'm thankful we did that, but I also would love for it to be very clear to all that stories that are women-led, stories that are uh, about women are no less powerful or uh, commercially viable or whatever else than uh, stories about men. And I think that that is something that I would love to see replicated. And I wish I was replicating it. I'm surprised I'm actually creating the the pathway for the first time. Um, So I want to see more. All I ever want is to see is to see more uh, barriers broken, is to see more. Uh, you know, walls and and issues of this nature uh, annihilated, so that we see we hear more from the voices that we haven't heard from previously. It's time, and anything less than that is is us. You know, cr- cr- creating our own travesties. We don't need to curb or marginalize any more voices. Right,
0: and it sounds like another thing that you hope will come of the show is highlighting and reminding people about something that was. Almost like, uh, unfortunately, I would, I, not to, I want to choose my words carefully here, but people, it was almost a fad to be concerned about the the girls who were kidnapped by Boko Haram in Africa, and then people sort of forgot about it, I think. And you have made a point, I think, at your initiative to highlight and remind people about two of them uh, at the end of every performance of Eclipse. Why Is that something that you felt was important to do?
1: Because this is a living issue. And Mm -hmm. for me, none of my, as I was saying earlier, um, my work must be a channel for activism and advocacy. It's not so that I can have my name on a marquee. It's so that voices can be heard and issues can be given attention. And we, as a world, uh, retain our conscience about these issues and, and realize that we can make changes to this world, that we don't have to accept where it is, but we also have to know what it is in order to do that. So bringing awareness is something that's at the crux and the core of this play for me. It was That's why I wrote it. I, I was horrified. I didn't know the stories of women and girls in war um, on my own continent, and and elsewhere, and I was shocked that I knew the names of warlords, uh, you know, like Charles Taylor, but I didn't know the names of women and girls who had had been who had walked through the, the travesties, and so it to me to tell the story that is uh, to make sure that the the campaign you're mentioning, the initiative is is called hashtag know her name Uh and it's it's about breaking that issue of statistics of making these girls statistics even to bring back our girls girls we don't know their names Uh and uh just to know one name every night so when i created this it was very much alongside mr emmanuel ogebe who's a human rights lawyer who does amazing work to help people who have been victims of the Boko Haram from Northern Nigeria, where he's from. And he's brought 12 of the girls who jumped off of the truck that night in 2014 to the United States to safety and put them in school, allowing them to have the two things that the Boko Haram was trying to deny them, education and self-determination. And so I met some of these girls that I work, I'm an ambassador for the one campaign. Uh I met some of them, had a one campaign event and um, that it was there that I realized that, um, you know, I, I wanted to continue to be a part of that, to really stand in the face of these girls who've been through what they've been through and whose classmates are going through what they're going through. And I remember being an African girl in high school and the idea of that happening is so, it's it was devastating to mm-hmm. me. So I, I remained connected to him and he brings girls, he'll be back next week with a mother of one of the girls who are wow. still missing. And he brings oh, yeah. girls. Um, he brings girls to the show. We've had a, a number of the girls come, wow. and it was him who came up with the idea that we we dedicate the shows to the girls, and then from there we built on it. And then I said, well, let me try to ask um, Bono to come and in, kick off the initiative. I, he's such an amazing, mm-hmm. amazing humanitarian, amazing advocate. He's done. He's saved a lot of lives just by using his power for good, mm-hmm. and being relentless and brave. And uh, and understanding his you know his role in it all and how to give voice to others, and so I asked him, and he happened to be in town the week we needed to launch wow. it, and uh, he made it work. And I will always be grateful for him for that. He came up with this amazing um, uh, idea that you know. He, you know, Lupita came up with the idea of know her name and the idea and really highlighting that in the play, you don't know the names of the characters till the very end and you never know her name. Right. And uh, that was, of course, intentional yeah, of course. because of what war does to right. uh, identity and 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 how we see women and girls mm-hmm. like this. And so he then came up with the idea. It was a beautiful collaboration. He then came up with the idea of of saying of having the audience repeat back the names and of course they're going to do what he told them
0: to right, do it. right 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 they're going
1: to listen to the rock star. Or they were he's and used to having people exactly. <laughs> sing back at him i watched yeah. him at a concert where literally the whole of one love was totally right. sung not by him he just stood there and the audience sang right, it to right, him it right, was amazing right, right. so anyway um then he did that and now we do that every night so every night the audience speaks the names mm-hmm. of these girls and i stood in the audience with Uh, and I was back from Atlanta and I've stood in the audience and experienced that with the audience. And it is, there is something deeply resonant about that, about really it's the connection that suddenly is real when you know the names of these girls and Mm -hmm. you've spoken the names of these girls. And then we equip the audience with ways to stay involved because there are always ways you can help. Believe it or not, there's always a way you can help make this less of an issue. Then of course, ultimately, um, we want their other we wanted to name girls who are dealing with terrible experiences in, in with Isis we wanted to start talking about the girls in, the, in Sudan mm-hmm. but you know I've actually dealt with um, the issue that the people I'm deeply you know I, I'm connected to and, and really respect who do that work and are working in those regions they can't submit the names because of fear of for the people and their families Wow So we, we dedicated to all these girls some who we cannot name. For their own
0: safety. Well, as a final thing here, I just have to ask you, you know, it's as you take stock, if you have a moment I, to take stock at this point, you have a show that has been so well-received it is making a difference what you're talking about, and you're nominated here for Best Play at the Tony Awards in the city where you were educated and you, I'm sure, saw plenty of other shows that shape your artistic sensibility, so... How would you summarize? You know, if we listen to this ten years from now, how would you just summarize the mm-hmm. way oh where God. you're you're feeling right now and what your outlook is going forward?
1: Uh, yeah, I guess it's a few things. I I do, I do try to stay in the moment because a part of me is trying to is focusing on the next thing. Uh, I just see a lot of I see my list of to do. I see the other stories I want to make sure I get told and. The other ways I want to um, bring voice to different issues. So it's also about staying in the moment mm-hmm. and really. Um, having a celebratory moment and I've, I've had such a great time. I have such a great time with the women who are part of this play. Uh, in this, insanely enough, we are so close and we spend an amazing amount of time together and have such a joyous time. So I'm having a very celebratory moment right now and I, that's one thing I want to always make sure I do is to celebrate the work, celebrate the fruits. Um, and celebrate the people who um, are a part of it, who are my collaborators, who are my village. Uh, so that's the one thing. The other thing is uh, that I feel is, is very important to do. Of course, is to have intention about the next thing that must be done, um, and to keep keep working at uh, full throttle, really, to get those stories out there and to to tell them with as much excellence as I can uh, as I can bring forth. Uh, the other thing is. Uh, and it's a big thing for me, is encouraging the next generation of writers. I come across a lot of writers of, of color, young writers, women writers, who um, white male writers, all types, but they uh, they all are dealing with some sort of block, some sort of barrier, some sort of hindrance that where they literally tell me, I want to write this, I have this story in me, but... And I just want to and continue to encourage them to have courage. And courage doesn't mean that you don't have fear. It means you do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And there's never going to be a perfect path. And there's never going to be a a ton of cheerleaders around you all day, every day. Mm -hmm. There has to be uh, um, that burden on your heart has to be the thing that makes you sit down and figure out when and how and where. I've had people ask me, how do I write this story? You listen to the story. There's no perfect way. There's no perfect spot in the perfect room. I've written at 3 a.m. on my couch. I've written at 6 a.m. staring at a lake. I've written on the set of a show. Mm-hmm. I've written when an idea comes to me. Like I, it, it, there's no. It's submitting to the story. It's allowing the story to overwhelm you, and it's believing in in the fact that you can get it done. There's a lot of no around us in this world. There's a lot of can't do it. There's a lot of distractions. Right. We have to find your rules of life that allow you to, as, as Tony Morrison said, it takes great discipline to write a story and, and it does. And so I, I just want to encourage those writers that you know, their, their voices are needed. Uh, those stories are needed. And I always say it's not even about you get out of the way because it's not about you. <laughs> it's about the people that will be benefit and will be blessed by the fruit you create. And when I see Pascal Armand, who was Bessie from the very first reading, and now Tony it, it makes me want to cry. Mm-hmm. It does, because um, her talent gets to shine. But if I didn't sit down and write that story, would it have had that same opportunity? So get to work. It's not about you.
0: Thank you so much. Really the treat to talk to you. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs>